0: Welcome to Going Up North. I'm KCT and this is episode 13. My buddy Trung was looking for a break from the grind and decided to come up for the weekend to take it all in and get a shot at Spear in his first northern. Now this was recorded back in January. So some of our conversations are about things that already happened, are happening, or will happen soon. So keep that in mind over the next few weeks. I couldn't have had a better time out on the ice and I'll tell you right now, there is no shortage of truth bombs and honesty about a whole bunch of things from my guy. So why don't we just dive right in. <laughs> yep.
1: Hello. Should I shut this? Yep. Okay. So you kind of bait the fish and then you jab it with the trident. Hold on a second, I'm recording this for posterity. So am I. <laughs> Have you started recording already? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay.
2: I had to get you saying I'm excited and then it was the first time on the ice. Um,
1: well, in case it didn't take the
2: first time, I'm real excited. It's my first <laughs> time on the ice. <laughs> this is so cool. So, you can see way under my feet. Yeah. And I can see under yours. Um. So, you, if a fish comes from my side, you'll see it way before I do. Okay. And you'll be like, "Holy shit, dude!" And I'll be like, "I can't see it." <laughs> okay. Um. But if you see one, get your spear ready. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you how we do this. Okay. Or if I tell you, hey, there's one coming, you you take the spear, real careful, put it Uh in the water, so it's over the top of the fish, Mm -hmm. perpendicular to it,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. and then when you're ready, you almost just drop it. Mm -hmm. You don't throw it, don't do this, Mm -hmm. just go. And then there's a fucking fish on it, and you'll grab the rope, pull the fucking thing back up. And hopefully, well, no, there will be a fish on it. If one comes in, we'll get it. Don't worry. Um, so, if you want to throw one at the bottom, so you feel like you know what you're doing, you're more than welcome to. Okay. Alright, So, how do to
1: untangle this here? Okay.
2: Yep, don't hold on to the rope. That was basically perfect, except for it stopped when yeah. it hit your hand with the rope. Yeah, you can just—that's yeah, pretty much exactly how you're gonna do it.
1: I have to also not jab my toes with it. Right.
2: <laughs> yep, and you don't wanna. If you want, you can move that chair over. If, you're, don't, if you don't, you don't want to be sitting that close to the wall or whatever. Oh I no, mean, I'm cool. Um. Yeah, you don't want to be standing on the rope or whatever. So. I always kind of make sure that it's... How
1: did you saw this hole through the ice?
2: My dad came out here with a buddy of his and they use a chainsaw.
1: Whoa!
2: Yeah, I know. Isn't that a little crazy? That's a
1: process. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so they put the house where they want it and then they use a chisel mm-hmm. to mark on from the inside where mm-hmm. the square is. And then they take a chainsaw and they cut down to not quite all the way through the ice. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're shooting water everywhere. Yeah and then like, they'll cut the square almost all the way through and then the last time they go around they'll cut all the way through and then they just push the block down mm. under the ice and shove it over. Nice. Yeah. And then they back the house back because you have the house here and then you pull it forward, cut the hole and then you just wheel it back over the hole. It is really thick. Yeah. Oh,
1: Jesus <coughs> fucking Christ. <laughs> I do not see a damn fish. Mix her up
2: a little bit. See if we can get some action. Fucking, I haven't seen a thing today.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen anything either. Which. I'm like leaning back, and trying to see if there's any fish on there. Right. we have been out here for like an hour and a half-ish or something. Uh, what time is it? It's to be like 10.30, is Yeah, it? It? it's like 10.30, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like two hours, probably. Around, yeah, roughly an hour and a half,
2: yeah. So, yeah, how did you get into comics?
1: Oh, my God. That's, uh... Well, I mean, like, I always read comics when I was younger. I always find images to be super important um, as a gateway to literacy. Because I didn't speak a lot of English when I was younger. I didn't learn how to read from my parents, really. Like, I spoke Vietnamese. We came over when I was two, and my parents didn't speak any English, for the most part. So, you know, they got me a library card, and they were like, go wild. And so I was like, okay, great. So I read a lot of Archie comics when I was a kid. (laughs) Like, the library used to, like, collect those little digests that you could buy at the supermarket, and I used to read those a lot. I was like, ah, Archie, (laughs) Veronica, Betty you're all crazy white people and then um but yeah no after the archie comic stuff when i was very little like i, I like went from archie to garfield and like read all nice. Gar- i was fascinated by garfield for some reason like the jokes were incredibly repetitive and just not very sophisticated but like it was so charming to me and i also i think that was when i started engaging and actually drawing because they would collect the jim davis garfield books in these huge volumes right they're all like horizontally oriented because mm-hmm. that's how the panels are and you could see how his drawings changed over time and i was like oh you can like get better even if you're a grown-up that sounds awesome so that's when i started to actually draw things and then i just kind of kept reading i like exhausted the children's section because that's where the archie comics and garfield stuff where they were in, like, okay. children's comics and then if you moved over into the art history section and the teen section for some reason that was where all of the like Belgian comics were like you could read Asterix and um, and Tintin over in those sections and that's where I started to actually get like a really strong sense for this is what I kind of want to do and then I forgot all about it because you know I was in school and suddenly I had to be practical Hmm. and so I kind of drew on and off all the way through high school and I wanted to go to an art school like I in high school I won a lot of stuff for illustration like the state high school league stuff oh okay i didn't even know that there was a thing until i exhausted the curriculum in my high school and they were like "Whoa, i guess you can do whatever you want now there's some state stuff that you can do um and the spanish teacher of all people encouraged me to like go and do that and i still didn't think that my work was good enough to get into art school i like had some weird notion that like people who you know, students who were, like, 17, 18-year-olds applying to college, like, had these amazing portfolios, and and then, like, and so I was intimidated because, like, the materials were all, like, graduating students, like, you know how they, like, advertise the schools? They're all, like, graduating students. They've been through the school already for, like, four years, and so their work looks professionally ready. I didn't realize that all of my peers who were, like, applying to these schools had their, like, weeb trash anime OCs, like, (laughs) just, like, really for all work. work um, and I was really intimidated so I was like I'll just go to a university and like I'm like a huge egghead like it'll be no problem for me to do that and my parents want me to do something practical anyway so I compromised and I went to a university like a liberal arts university and just studied art history and, and drawing and painting there. Hmm. Oh I didn't actually start drawing comics until after college too. Really? Yeah. I kind of fell into it by accident because I had originally wanted to do um, printmaking. Okay. But intaglio printmaking was was frustrating and I liked the staff who worked um, in painting better so I was like, I'll learn how to paint instead, we'll see how that goes. It was actually art history that got me the most interested in making pictures and so I studied turn of the century children's book illustration and ephemera like lots of advertisements and like the stuff that we would consider to be lowbrow was the stuff that i was interested in because the whole like um accessible iconography like what are most people who are looking at images what are they getting out of it and why are these images being presented to this particular group of people right so like looking at propaganda and advertisements and all of that junk from kind of about the gilded age up until the first world war and that was where i was like oh like these are really aesthetically interesting. I wonder why we don't do stuff like this textually or aesthetically anymore. And so I kind of started working like that. And then I started making comic books that worked like that. And then after I graduated and had no idea what I was doing, I started putting my work on the internet. And, you know, I basically stumbled from getting my degree and, like, just tripped and fell on my ass into comics. And it worked somehow?
2: I mean, very much so, right? Like... Yeah. I've seen I'm a lot of hype people. over... uh Twisted romance.
1: Yeah. I'm really excited about that.
2: Yeah, so how did that all come together?
1: Well, it's kind of just a... I think the writer Alex DeCampi sort of envisioned it as sort of a, you know, we're going to do romance books that we all like to make. So she she usually writes crime thrillers and kind of like sci-fi noirs and so she's very like kind of a punchy pulpy writer. And um, we had talked about working together before, but the project that she was doing wasn't quite up my alley. And so she was like, well, we'll work on something else. Um, And so she was like, hey, I'm doing this romance anthology. Do you want to do this because you've done a romance thing before and I can write you a literary fairy tale? And I was like, oh, okay. And then she sent me the script and I was like, yes, I must draw this. So that's how that came together. And I guess and we're publishing it through Image. So yeah. she has, like, pretty much full creative control over the direction of the books. So I'm very excited about all of those stories. Like, a lot of the people who are also working on it, I really like a lot of their work a lot. So I'm pretty pumped to read the rest of it, and I have no idea what the rest of it really looks like. Yeah, I'm excited.
2: Um, yeah, that's, that's huge, dude. I saw I was on the fucking AV club's... Most anticipated comics of 2018.
1: Yeah, that was exciting. That's super crazy, dude. <laughs> I That's read the super AV Club crazy. all the time, and I was like, Oh, look, I'm in this.
2: Yeah, right? Well, and then... And that was legit.
1: I went, like I say, I went and bought it from a girl that was like... <laughs> you went to a comic book, and... It still blows my mind that, like, you can find books that i worked on, like, in bookstores. It was...
2: It, dude, the girl was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's right here. <laughs> I was like, oh, right on. That's cool. And then she scanned it, and it, like, didn't scan. And she was like, because I had already talked to her about, like, knowing you and stuff. And she was like, do you just, you can just take it. And I was like, Aww. it's $2. <laughs> like, I'm going to pay you for it. <clears throat> and she was like, well, I won't scan. And I, like, just took $2 out of my pocket and was like, just put it in the till. Like, here, keep it. I don't care. Like, whatever you want to do with it, but I'm paying for it. I'm leaving.
1: Is that what the local comic shops are suffering? Because <laughs> we don't take careful inventory. Um. <laughs> uh, but that's really nice of her.
2: Yeah, yeah, she, I'm sure, she was like, what and so now I know that I can just go to this, and it's like a block from
1: where I work, so I can just stop on my way home. Nice. Give me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it sounds like, it's going to be published um, in February, so around Valentine's Day, I think mine comes out on like February 28th, Mm -hmm. and then it'll be collected into an, like a, oh, they're all going to be
2: printed later in one huge volume? Yeah, that'll be out in
1: September, I believe that's awesome dude yeah that's awesome God, I'm so pumped
2: about it so I I, was, I don't know this either do you have siblings you're, you're I like do. I don't know you have a brother but yeah
1: yeah I know I have one little brother
2: so was he born here then he was yeah okay and you
1: were we were born in Vietnam nope I was born in the Philippines
2: oh that's right okay so when did your parents did they leave right after the war, or during the war, or?
1: Oh man, I should just tell you the whole story about my parents because they're pretty cool. Like they're awesome people. Um, um, yeah,
2: I mean we got nothing, but this is see this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna
1: stare at this like little emerald square. Yep.
2: <laughs> it's a nature show that you can't change the channel.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, my parents are great. They um so my dad um is a little older than my mother. He uh, his parents were from well his dad was from the north. And they did some kind of work for the government for a little while, and then things changed politically, and um, after the war, because, like, his dad was an official, he, like, was sent to a new economy zone. Like, him and his entire family were sent to new economy zones. If you don't know what that is, it's, like, a, it's basically like a concentration camp, except, like, in the woods. They just, like, take you out of society and throw you out there, and they're like, okay, here you go, have some malaria um tons of people died it was really terrible they eventually like worked their way back to the cities um they lived in the in the south of vietnam and um and he like like they were quite comfortable for a while it's sort of bizarre because all of his older siblings right like he has like almost 20 siblings same set of parents like just almost 20 siblings they were well well off enough that like they um that each of them could like have a nanny up until after the war, and then they okay. like had everything taken away from them because they happened to be on the wrong side of the conflict. Um, and so then there's this huge stark difference between the way that his older siblings interact with his younger ones because they grew up very tri- privileged and remember all of that, and his younger ones are all very like kind of scrappy, like we gotta like do what we can to survive. And so he was sort of like at that cutoff where he was like kind of on the side of the younger siblings, and he sold ice cream right to make ends meet. So he's, like, running around with, like, his little ice cream cart. People used to beat the shit out of him and take all of his money. So he was like, okay, I need to do something about this. So he's, like, trying to go to night school, trying to take care of all of his siblings. And he's trying to get away with the money that he made at the ice cream cart without, like, getting the shit beat out of him. So he's like, I'll, you know, I'll take kickboxing lessons. We'll see where that goes. So he uh, eventually be- <laughs> he becomes um, a national champion. Um there's like all kinds of pictures of him like with a gold medal and like he he still trains people to this day like he still gets like he still gets like i guess the whatever the organizing body of like the federation of martial arts still send him things and ask him to come visit them like he's a he's an old master which is so funny because he's adorable um but yeah no like he he's very like uh he's very capable fighter um, and so he won a lot and gained a fair amount of notoriety and he became a teacher. My mother, um, grew up in, uh, Nha it's a tiny fishing village, um, well, it was a tiny fishing village in the south of Vietnam, it's since grown quite a lot, um, into sort of a touristy destination for Australians and New Zealanders, um, they, uh, so she grew up in an area where, like, she kind of noticed that all of her friends were, like, coming home from school, like, all, like, were coming to school like all beaten up and bruised and nobody talked about the incredibly prevalent um, domestic violence that was happening where she was living like men would just beat the shit out of their wives and daughters and children Um, and she was like I don't want to deal with this Uh, and so and she has her own um, complicated relationship with like her father and like the way that he treated her mother and so she was like I'm going to take kickboxing lessons and then that's where they met oh wow (laughs) so she just like rose through the ranks and got very good at it and she was like hey you're a trainer let's hang out (laughs) (laughs) so they dated for a while and you know they decided um you know after the war was over all their families were pretty politically oppressed and so they were like well let's escape the country together that was maybe their third date probably (laughs) (laughs) this is
2: so that would have been shortly after the war
1: yeah this was in the well not shortly even i think this was like kind of along that decade after so it was the war in like the 60s they sort of grew up in the 70s-ish and they met each other um late 70s early 80s i think Mm -hmm. yeah no actually it must have been like the early to mid 80s when they shoved off um so they like got in a tiny fishing boat they're the group of folks is collectively called, like, boat people. Like, they would just shove off the shore and hope that nobody caught them. They were caught the first time, spent a year in jail, and then they did it again the following year. And they, you know, like, her fought, like, my mom's dad was a fisherman, so they, like, had his fishing boat, and they shoved off to the Philippines. They weren't really... With a
2: crew of people or just themselves? Oh, no,
1: like, a hundred other people on this Holy tiny fishing fuck. boat. It was crazy. Oh, man. And I keep, like, I, I'm trying to find out as much as I can about boat people and all of this. And there are not a lot of historical documents in the U.S. that you can find pictures of. But you can in Canada, for some reason. Like, any other place in the world, like, you can find a lot of information on it. I could not find any American sources for it. So they were just floating on the ocean for, like, 10 days. Like, it was supposed to not take that long, but there was a storm and, you know, all the supplies, like, flew overboard. Everybody thought they were gonna die. And they were rescued by Filipino fishermen and... Taken over to a refugee camp because they couldn't go back to Vietnam because they absconded, like they right. <laughs> weren't allowed to go back. So they just you know lived in a refugee camp um, uh, somewhere in the Philippines. I forget which island. Yep, yeah, but that's where I was born. They got married there um, in the mess hall, and uh, and then they had me in 1990. Wow, dude. Yeah. And then, I think in, like, 91 or 92, Mount Pinatubo, like, that volcano blew up. Okay. (laughs) So the the camp was just completely decimated. Like, everybody had to be, like, choppered out of there. And then uh, they won the green card lottery and came over to Minnesota. That's fucking crazy.
2: Yeah, nothing phases them now. Right, yeah, (laughs) I suppose. They're very Uh, chill people. They're like, eh, it
1: could be worse.
2: (laughs) Jesus. Uh, so the lottery was specific to Minnesota?
1: I think, so, I think the lottery was just that they were allowed to come here, but they were sponsored by a family that lived in Minnesota. Okay. So, you know, they went from, like, being in Vietnam, close to the equator, being in (laughs) the Philippines to Minnesota, where suddenly they had to get coats.
2: Yeah. And were you saying something about, um, there being a specific concentration of Viet... Vietnamese, for some reason that fucking word I could never get it, Vietnamese, right? Yeah, Vietnamese, yeah, yeah. Uh, Vietnamese uh, immigrants or migrants or refugees in Minnesota in particular?
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not super solid on the specifics of it, I have to do a little bit more reading, but the point of connection that I keep finding is Walter Mondale, who was pretty heavily involved in the war, and so um, there was some kind of thing that allowed for, like, refugees from Southeast Asia a little bit easier passage to Minnesota in particular because that's where the war is from. So we have a lot of, like, we have a lot of Vietnamese immigrants here and in California and then, like, a lot of Hmong Americans in Minnesota as well. Isn't it, isn't
2: Minneapolis, well, the city's the highest, like, concentration population of Hmong in the country? I think so, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's always fun to like track those generational changes as well, because this has all happened very recently. So people are still kind of not used to like people still think we're like Chinese and Japanese, the folks who have been here for years and years and years. I'm like, nope, we came here like yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is interesting.
2: Is there uh? Well, I guess fucking racism is everywhere, but is there racism within that Southeast or Asian or Asian community like from like the war or in the communities where you say like the Japanese have been here forever and we're just here. Is there like tensions within the community at large or um, even in the microcosm of just say like your life and the experience in the Twin Cities?
1: Uh, my experience personally has been great. Like there tended not to be too many tensions. The only thing that I can think of that I really encountered was like there was this weird like, like I'm removed enough from the conflict because I'm a, like I'm an American, that like I tend not to experience that sort of thing. Like that intra-community strife, that like generational grudge between folks of like different factions. But it's always really weird, like, when I was in college, there would be, like, Vietnamese exchange students, and they would come over, and there's always this weird, like, oh, like, if you're wealthy enough to be here, that means you and your family were on the other side of the conflict That right. my family was that, you know, got us here, like, as refugees. And so there's this kind of weird social-political tension that we never address. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Strange. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And also just the Asian American history is sort of like any history is sort of fraught. It's very complicated. Yeah. And our relationship to um to like xenophobia and like white supremacy is very different than like Latino, Latina Americans and black Americans. Like we all have very distinct histories and relationships to each other and to um the prevailing culture in the United States, which is which gets us into trouble with each other sometimes like i don't know like asian american is sort of like a it's a it's a political moniker it was an identity that was forged in order to gain a little bit of like political coherence within a block of people but it turns out that we all come from like very disparately different places with like not too many things like we have just enough things in common to be like oh hey like yes i recognize these traits and your auntie and my auntie does the same thing but like politically we're kind of all over the place like vietnamese americans have always like we're sort of like cubans and like we have this incredible suspicion of communism now if we ended up here mm. and so they tend to vote republican no matter what like no matter what the issue is no matter what like they, they might not know like exactly what's going on like policy wise but their allegiance will be to the republicans because that's you know the ones who are most fervently against socialism and communism. Um, but very recently, uh, Vietnamese Americans swinged left, like, in the last election. Like, it's kind of a weird generational thing. So I think we're, like, far enough removed from that conflict to operate that way politically, which is so weird. Huh. sure there's more to it like i'm not like gonna speak for all the oh no Americans, no, no but, like, yeah. but like yeah like to like by my observation that seems to be a, an odd thing that's been happening yeah yeah no i mean like i getting back to the the racism conversation i think it's so interesting we tend to like to frame conversations about racism on based on our individual choices mm-hmm. i think that's so funny too because it's like well of course i know that like the white people in my life like think of me as a person but they're not going to understand like like it's not going to be evident that like something is making life more difficult for me on a day-to-day basis because they're not the source of it necessarily they just operate in the system that kind of protects them from like um limited access to jobs and like just kind of the day-to-day of like having to explain your existence where you live like it's all very um it's very convoluted and so like trying to explain to people that oh like it's a systemic thing it means that like whatever it is that you're doing like it's not necessarily your fault but at the same time there are things that you can do to make things easier and like it's not a matter of like you like this person or you don't i think talking about it individually helps like helps people feel better about their own like individual choices, a thing that they have control over. Whereas the broader implications of it being a systemic and institutional thing, feel feels so far out of reach. So it's more comfortable to think about it as personal choice. Right? right. Just the distribution of responsibility is so crazy to me. Like I think about all of the different conversations that I've had with my parents and then like talking to like my like friends of color or like, the, like, the, my girlfriends growing up and like we've all had different variations of various conversations about like how to keep ourselves safe like I wasn't allowed to like like my parents were very strict like you're not allowed to like be outside out beyond our block and like you can't go like you can't rollerblade to the library by yourself like you can't do that and um as I grew up and like talked to some more of my friends I was like yeah we've all had variants of this conversation like how to behave around um law enforcement and how to make sure that your ass is covered and then like i got to college and like started going out right and like i have a, like i'm a gay dude i have a lot of girlfriends and they have a very specific um way to prepare to go out and it i don't know, like blew my mind at the time because i was like a teenager and they were like okay so we all have to stick together and we have to go in pairs. Nobody leaves a drink alone. Nobody like has to do any of that. And so there's lots of like, okay, like how do we, how do we maintain our safety from the parking lot to the building? How do we maintain our safety, safety inside the building? How do we maintain our safety inside the building while we're getting a drink? How do we maintain our safety while we're going from the bar to the bathroom? Like, how do we like stay alive in all of these like very, very mundane situations? And I'm like, Jesus, your life is stressful. Like all the time. I never have to think about that. And that just sort of like, oh, like, they have to like they're expected to be responsible for their own safety and their own survivability but i'm not expected like and like my guy friends are not expected to participate in keeping them safe and not like just being fucking predators that's crazy mm-hmm. and now that like people are like expecting men to be responsible for their own bullshit <laughs> men are like but why yeah right yeah absolutely <laughs> hey, what is this i don't wanna <laughs> it's all very whiny too like i look yeah. at it and i'm like this is so embarrassing
2: yeah grow the fuck up dude I, yeah it blows my mind man like i don't know maybe i was
1: just raised right <laughs> But. Right. oh yeah my parents had no idea <laughs> when they got here they were like okay you're they're gonna think of you as a foreigner just be safe but it's also a little bit weird, too, because we, like, immigrants tend not to be taught about, like, the history of slavery and, like, the subjugation of Asian Americans, or, like, um sorry, Amer- like, indigenous Americans. Hmm. Um, and so we don't know that history when we first come over here. So, like, Hmong Americans and Vietnamese Americans are, like, well, black people don't get treated differently. But, like, we just have no context for why all of this Institutional violence is happening, and then when it does, it's like, oh, this land of opportunity that we came to is like not. And so there's this, there's this tension. Like it, it sort of dovetails really nicely into how frequently Vietnamese American folks who are a little older vote Republican and like vote very conservatively, because they have no context for like institutional violence, and they don't have a context for like the history of slavery and like the subjugation of all of these different people, and that like built the country so it's easy for them to assume that everybody is on the same playing field and they're expected to be grateful that they were here to begin with that they were allowed in to begin with and so they're going to support the status quo that made that possible and it's a it's a weird and kind of insidious like we were sort of tailor-made to make it more difficult for black people to have um, to gain a footing in the conversation about institutional violence against black lives. So, Asian Americans have like a really different, like we have to interrogate our relationship to white supremacy and our like relationship to anti-blackness like in a very specific way. Otherwise, we're just complicit in a lot of ways. And we still like suffer all of the xenophobic bullshit as well so it's like a really complicated like this is why we don't coalesce this is why like coalition building is very difficult across communities of color even though we all you know face different degrees of oppression under white supremacy it's very like it's very complicated there are a lot of moving parts yeah (laughs) it's so sad dude
2: And I feel like, man, you probably... I don't know, you... Do you fucking feel even, like, farther removed from that? Because of, like... Within the small community of immigrants, within the small community of Vietnamese immigrants, like, you also fit into another smaller category of, like, being part of the queer community? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, in my case, it was kind of fortunate because my parents, like, like I said, like, they've been through a lot of shit, nothing faces them at all. So... Uh, I get more shit about being Asian in gay spaces, like queer spaces, than I do about being queer in my, like, Asian American spaces. Interesting. It's kind of, biz- it's, it's weird. So this is actually
2: something that I, oh man, I talk to Steve about this a lot, because it blows my, like, he told me about it and it fucking blew my mind. Oh my god. What? And, um, <laughs> <coughs> you mentioned yesterday about how spending a lot of your time on the internet um, you can just put everything there and mm-hmm. say this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like take it or leave it, like it or not. Yeah. Fuck you. Like I don't get to. I don't need to know you as a person. You just get to know me as this thing on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that upfrontness, like Steve, uh, fucking grinder, right? I give him. I joke with him about grinder all the time.
1: Oh god, I've never used it. <laughs> oh so okay, okay,
2: okay. So maybe, the, maybe you don't understand. So, may, but you said you get more shit about being. Asian in the gay community. Mm-hmm. And so, like, on, like, your little fucking profile, no fats, no femmes, no Asians.
1: No fats, no femmes, no... Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Happens all the time. Right, so... That's wh- why I don't use Grindr, actually, because, like, I had a similar experience with other apps, and I was like, it's not going to be different. It's more expedient now, so I'm just going to see more of it.
2: Right. Um, so is that part of living on the Internet and just putting everything on Front Street? Or is that like accepting racism that we, that not, I'm not we, cause I can't do anything about it, I guess, yeah. but I'm not part of that community,
1: but well, okay. So gay men in particular occupy such a weird space within like this oppression dialogue because, um, so like, yes, like there are still places in the world where you can be killed for being gay and like, it's very dangerous. Like, obviously there's still oppression happening. And so, you know, But if you're gay, and you're cis, and you're white, and you're working and operating within, like, kind of urban spaces where, like, you have a lot of freedom in order to, like, pursue your, you know, your interests and, like, date and, like, reasonably have, like, legal protections against people who are going to be, like, you know, fucking crazy. um, There, there's, like, an immense amount of privilege in that still, because they don't really have to interrogate, like, they, they're, like, they don't have to interrogate all of the, like, other stuff that's happening. And like it's oh god it's sort of like the argument about like white feminism and like how that's sort of short-sighted and only really supports like one group of marginalized people at the expense of the other ones okay. it's kind of like that with like white gay men who don't think that misogyny is a thing or like who don't think that racism is a thing and i think like if i'm trying to like i guess dating and romance in particular is such a stickler because of the nature of like oh it's like people are very cavalier about like oh it's just a preference and it's like not at all a thing that they think about but like in particular with like the hypersexualization of black men and like the desexualization of asian men is very like it's rooted in like kind of colonialist histories because like so there's all kinds of stereotypes about like um coming out of like the reason why like black people were like Captured and subjugated, like people kept reasoning that, like, oh, like these folks are like not as smart, and they're more like animalistic, and so like the hypersexualization and like t- sexual violence enacted on Black people for a long time has been part and parcel with the oversexualization of them contemporarily, right? And so you've got like the Jezebel stereotype for Black women and like the Mandingo stereotype for Black men,
2: mm-hmm. and.
1: Uh, so like asian people exist in places where we are our own hegemony and so we're a competitive. like a lot of us come from a competing imperial power and so that xenophobic relationship between the west and the east like the propaganda is to emasculate the other person um and to kind of emasculate that whole swath of people and so the desexualization of asian men within romantic spaces kind of we've sort of inherited that from like colonial imperialist narratives about the other and the east and like what is savage and what is civil and what is not Hmm. and so there's like all kinds of like that kind of bullshit that's happening but like at its face it's like this is really annoying and i don't want to have to deal with it like as a person who's just trying to live (laughs) my life right right
2: Yeah, this is, like I say, it's another thing where it's, like, people who have been othered for so long then turn and other a portion of the community so fucking hard. Yep. And then don't think that there's anything wrong with that. How the fuck can you think that there's not anything wrong with that? Or, you know, like, or like Steve was saying, people say it's just a preference. Well, it's not just a preference if you refuse someone, right? If it's a preference... I prefer to fuck women, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: not dudes, means maybe I'll fuck a dude. But if you say, I prefer to fuck women, but you categorically will not fuck a dude, that's not a preference, that's, you know... Mm -hmm it's just like a weird way of saying preference yeah. like fuck you dude like no you just don't <laughs> like black dudes or whatever
1: right like yeah it's like uh, well, you, it's 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 like a space where people are like okay like we encourage you to um like we're encouraging folks to exercise their sexual agency because like that's a thing that you weren't allowed to do so like oh okay yes i can like i can like fuck men now this is great this is great this is fantastic but then that like extend like that extends into like oh like i can get real specific about my preferences and not have to worry about any of this because people are encouraged me to encouraging me to exercise my sexual agency that way right so it's like it's such a fucked conversation because people still think about it in terms of like this is like a freedom that i have to exercise like nobody's gonna make you do anything but like the the notion that like to take that agency and to like go and um corroborate like really awful systems outside of your own bubble of oppression is so frustrating and it's just not like a it's not something that we engage with in a fruitful way at all yeah like i said it's just bizarre dude <laughs> it's depressing
2: <laughs> it, yeah yeah for sure Oh, uh, for sure and is there so, this could just be like my fucking dumbass, but you, you're the person to ask because you probably have a really interesting perspective on this. Is there also something to like the, you were saying the desexualization of Asian mm-hmm. men. Is there something in that that's like the perceived femininity?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, like, yes, like, um, the imperial history of emasculating, um, Asian, like maleness in particular um comes with like that comes with a prerequisite of misogyny where we conflate things that are feminine with things that are weak and terrible so that would not exist the way that it does if people were not already incredibly misogynistic that we don't think femininity is a good or attractive thing so there's that so like yeah there's like a good deal of like there's a good deal of like just like sexism among gay men and like uh just like uh, this weird reaction to and i understand that the history is a little bit fraught there as well because like there we live within the context of a society that's already very sexist and so gay men with any kind of like feminine interests whatsoever were like like we were Nancy's, we were sissies like it was that sort of thing and so there's like this weird pushback to hyper-masculinize gay male spaces like oh like we're gonna be like we're very butch and like we're very manly we just happen to like other men and so there's like that weird pocket and, right and pushing back and that also kind of dovetails into like the sex like the the racist and sexist parts of it is like oh like we're like if you're if you're feminine you're like we don't find you sexy because that uh, you're like a lady and I'm like oh god there's all kinds of like just misogyny and misogyny, just like so much bullshit that's happening right now and you still think that you're like reacting to the hegemony and like it's 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 valid like they are but at the same time they're perpetuating other things in order to make themselves feel more validated in themselves and it's so I get so mad <laughs> I'm like <"Ugh!" laughs> God god I mean, I could talk about it all day, but like, at the end of the day, like, my experience, like, going into a gay male dominated space is like a. No matter how well I understand it, and no matter how well I think that I can navigate it, like, in my head, like, in theory, navigating it in practice is brutal! Your self esteem is just fucked from the beginning! It's the worst thing! And like, you. It doesn't matter how well you know it. It's just like, oh, like, actually, I I feel like shit right now in this space and I'm not going to engage with it anymore. So we just kind of, like, get pushed out of all of these spaces. But, I mean, the fortunate thing is that we, like, folks are very intentional about, like, curating their spaces now. And so now we just make our own, which seems to be the argument that people go to. Like, well, why don't you just make your own space? Okay. And then we get called racist for it because we're like, ah, uh, let's not have a space where, like, white people take over and be nasty to us. And they're like, why won't you let white people in? Right. Uh, why isn't there white pride day? <laughs> ah, fuck you, dude. Right? Hey. Mm-hmm.
0: Fish hangar ending strikes again. I can't wait till next week to find out if we speared that fish and hear what crazy interesting things Krung's got to say. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on either. So tune in next week and I'll be revealed. As always, be sure to check out the Facebook page, give us a like and a share, tell your friends, follow me on Twitter, KCT at going Up North one the numeral one. And now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can listen how and when you want. Make sure to leave a review and all the stars. Thanks for listening. KCT and this is going up north.